Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What happened when Ralph Waldo Emerson got too drunk? What? He was throwing up. Can I tell another one that is kind of related? Sure. Okay, um, why couldn't Henry David Thoreau leave his room? Because he was walled in. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. You just got some very literate icebreaker jokes from Cassie <laughs> Ramone of the band Vivian Girls. That was pretty impressive. I, it was, but here's even more impressive. Coming up, we have ex-poet laureate Billy Collins as well as the Garbage, Food Raves, and Modern Art. It's like a little liberal arts program right here on the show this week. For free. Yeah, I'm impressed by us. <laughs> All right, first, time for small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. The Mississippi River hits record high levels. Tigers hurler Justin Verlander tossed his second career no-hitter. Raj Rajaratnam convicted of felony charges, alleging he made a fortune off insider trades. Now for something you haven't heard, we're speaking with Madeline Brand, host of the Madeline Brand Show on KPCC in L.A. Madeline, what story are you going to be talking about at dinner parties this weekend? Well, I'm going to be talking about something called the quirk theory. Mm. Is, is that is that yeah. like quantum physics? Yeah, is it scientific? No, not at all. It is this theory a woman named Alexandra Robbins has coined. Her premise is, look, it's the geeks, the nerds, I won't say losers, but people who are on the outside <laughs> of social cliques, shall we say, who are actually best suited to rule the world, uh, who are, make good adults. Although I have to say, if that theory holds true, then I should be president by now. <laughs> What does she have evidence to back this up? No, it's just a theory. It's a book. I was going to say, you know, are you kidding? This is a marketing ploy. Who buys books? Geeks. Geeks. So what kind there of book are they going to buy? Geeks will inherit the earth. As half geek, half popular, I will tell you, this is a gimmick. <laughs> you're half geek, half popular. <laughs> I was. Yeah. Wow, this is like you're multiculty then. You're like America in human form. I'm like those high school movies condensed. Matt, Madeline, you're a mother. Have you seen evidence to back this up at all? Maybe. Well, no, but I am sort of doubling down on this theory by turning my kids into outsiders who can't function. <laughs> Get that kid to Wesleyan. <laughs> Madeline Brand, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a watch, but instead of being waterproof, it's booze-proof. Hmm. <laughs> that could come in handy around punch bowls. Uh, first, the history right around this time back in 1987, New Jersey enacted a law requiring trash recycling. But what's really conversation-worthy is why. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Next time you recycle, thank the Mobro 4000. No, it's not some kind of robot. It was a barge. And in March 1987, it set sail from New York State, loaded with over 3,000 tons of rotting municipal garbage. The plan was to float the Mobro to North Carolina and drop the trash there. But when it arrived, protesters did too. Some worried the garbage contained hazardous waste. Others said North Carolina had plenty of garbage of its own to deal with. Suddenly, the Mobro was a political hot potato. Politicians told it to shove off. So began a six-month journey. With news cameras watching, the increasingly stinky barge floated over to Louisiana, then Florida. No takers. And when a rumor spread the Mobro might head to Mexico, Mexico sent out the Navy to make sure it didn't. 
Cigar barge became a symbol of overconsumption and of America's supposedly dwindling landfill space. It was a big reason some states started mandatory recycling. Meanwhile, the Mulbro wound up right back where it started, New York City, where the trash was burned. So that was the history. Now for the drink. On the line is Amir Rivera. He is a bartender at Mahogany in Belize, another country that refused the garbage. Amir, what cocktail did that story inspire you to make? I made one called Better No Litter, or in Creole, one of the languages in Belize, Better No Litter. Better Not Litter. It's a drink and a warning. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming that there is not actual litter in this drink. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it, it involves a rum call um one barrel one barrel rum okay yeah dark rum like like the dark sea perhaps yeah and you add like an ounce of coconut rum a little bit of a uh, creme de banana okay so very tropical yeah and to take up the sweetness a little bit add in some cranberry it's a little bit sour and where's the where's the garbage part okay so you chop up pineapple with the skin like in little chunks and you just throw it in the cocktail so it, it'll be like um <laughs> so you put in the like the rind of the pineapple into yeah. it kind of like floating trash. Yeah, yeah, like trash floating in the dark sea, exactly. I like it, but you're not really keeping with the theme because this actually sounds like something someone might want to drink. They won't reject it, like the barge. Yeah, so you, you needed something that someone wouldn't want to drink? <laughs> you're right, we'll stick with this. Okay. So Rico, that whole journey was could have been like a cruise for dumpster divers, you know what I mean? I'm sure there was probably like a shuffleboard set in there somewhere. I'm, I'm sure. And an endless trash buffet. That's right. It's the love boat for rats. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you want to trash us, you can head to our website and click contact. We promise to read your message before we throw it away. Our guest of honor this week is former poet laureate Billy Collins. He has a new collection of workout called Horoscopes for the Dead. And Billy, so we can get a sense of the collection, I was wondering if you could read one of the poems. Sure, absolutely. Uh, How about, After I Heard You Were Gone? After I Heard You Were Gone. I sat for a while on a bench in the park. It was raining lightly, but this was not a movie, even though a couple hurried by, the girl holding his jacket over her head, and the chess players were gathering up their pieces and fanning out into the streets. No, this was different. I could have sworn the large oak trees had just appeared there overnight, and that pigeon looked as if it had once been a playing card that a magician had transformed with the flick of a scarf. So there you go from something, you know, it's about a being in an emotional turmoil of mm-hmm. being abandoned by someone. You know, it could be a relationship or it could be someone who died. It doesn't make any difference, really. It's the effect on the the one who remains there. And he sits in a a park, and and he just sees normal things going on. But then it changes into something kind of surreal. Mm. You know, it has to do with the way an emotional shock of someone's death, perhaps, changes your perceptions. You know, it kind of leaves you numb, and things just look very odd for a while. Things don't look normal, and yet they are normal. Yeah. You know, a couple's hurrying by, the chess players are gathering up the piece. Everything seems normal, but really not. And then fi- the poem finally ends with a, you know, it sort of slips into this surrealism. 
you know, this pigeon is not a pigeon anymore. Emotion can really distort perception. Yeah, but it's somehow grounded in in reason by the fact that it's a magician doing it. It's not as if there's yeah, some... Yeah, no, it's not completely crazy. Yeah, but... yeah. I also think on the meta level, that line is actually where the poet is really flicking the scarf and turning it into something completely different in a way. I will take full credit for that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Do you set out to write a collection of poems about a certain subject, or do you just write poems and certain themes emerge? It's basically just writing one poem at a time. They're completely discreet from each other. But of course, because I'm writing them, you know, and mm-hmm. because poetry has these deep themes running through it, there are threads and themes and similarities that emerge. Poems about death are, are also very conventional. You know, it's a, it's a deep tradition in Western poetry to have the shadow of mortality fall across experience, mm. and the resulting sentiment is usually carpe diem, this cry to for greater involvement in the limited time of life that you have. Yeah, you said once in, in an interview one of the things that, that helps one be a poet is an attitude of, quote, not ever getting used to being alive. Yeah, to, to get away from the presumptuousness, I think, would be the word of being alive. Poetry, a lot of it tends to remind us this is all passing. Hey, you, walking down the street to get your newspaper, do you realize you're going to die? I mean, it's as simple <laughs> as that. <you> know? Right. <laughs> all right, we have two standard questions that we ask on our show. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? When I was Poet Laureate, I was interviewed a lot. Uh, the two most popular questions were, question one, how do you account for this incredible renaissance in American poetry with slam poetry and open mic and magazines and poetry contests? And the second question was, how come nobody reads poetry anymore? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the quick way I answered it is to say, yeah, there's a lot of poetry activity, but most of these people are poets. You know, it's it would be it would be like... As if no one went to the ballet except ballerinas. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Well, something about me is that I'm a avid Yankee fan. Wow. Many people are turning off their radios right now. Don't you have some responsibility for the underdog as a poet? I do, and everything but baseball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can be forgiven for being a Yankee fan because you're a native of New York. Yeah, and I taught in the Bronx just a stone's throw from the stadium itself. What is the quote about a poet? What does he do with the other 23 and a half hours of the day? Yeah, right. He (laughs) follows the box scores. All right, so Brendan, Billy likes poetry and baseball, right? Apparently, yeah. Yeah. He has a lot of time on his hands there. So check it out. He should do a modern epic rewrite of Casey at the Bat. You know, okay. where maybe Casey is on steroids. <laughs> Big hit. So it's like it's like Paradise Lost. Yes, on steroids. <laughs> There'll be no joy or hair in Mudville. That's right. In that epic, <laughs> apparently not. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to celebrate us in verse and post it on our Facebook page. It is Facebook.com/slash Dinner Party Download. So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Brendan, the other night I went up to San Francisco to go to this farmer's market. Farmer's market at night, huh? I know. That's not even the half of it, actually. Here's some tape of the scene outside. How long have you been waiting in line? One hour. Seriously? Totally serious. Did you expect this line? No, I thought I was going to eat right away. (laughs) That has not happened. No, it's not happening. I'm still hungry. I was expecting a little bit of a line, but not... A block and a half. <laughs> Man, it sounds like Fudapalooza out there. I picture Perry Farrell in a chef hat. Well, 
That's not far from the truth. It is. This is a monthly event. It's called the Underground Market. Okay. Thousands of people show up and pay $8 to enter, and it's kind of like a food rave, as I found when I went inside. So we're standing on the top floor of Public Works, which is a, a dual-level club in uh, San Francisco. It is 11 p.m., and I'm eating waffles made by... Savan Walensky. And this is called the Underground Market. What makes it underground? Well, what makes it underground is uh, in order to sell food to the public, you need to make it in a, an inspected facility. Uh, there's a lot of hurdles to work in a, an inspected plant, and a lot of people don't have uh, the resources. So this is geared towards people in the food industry that don't have a facility. And there's like dozens of people in here, most of whom are making this stuff, you know, at home in their kitchens or something. Yeah. I'm Laura Miller, and my business is Side Saddle Kitchen. I do raw vegan desserts. Basically, I can't afford a commercial kitchen right now. I'm hoping to in the future, and this market is helping me to get there. Now, tell me, why is it that you can do this legally, but you can't get into a farmer's market? It's because it's private. People sign off so that they can get in, because uh, it's not health code certified. People meaning the, the people that are coming in. By buying a ticket, they're saying, like, I risk getting salmonella and dying. Yeah, you could die. You could die right now. This is so punk rock right now. <laughs> Sick, bro. A lot of this stuff is homemade, but that doesn't mean it's simple. I'm watching a gentleman sell. What you making here? Making duck kong stuffed gnocchi with uh, wild black cherry brown butter sauce. And there's also a guy selling about a million extremely complex looking flavors of homemade bread pudding while a swing band plays downstairs. People do like our salted caramel. I really have to say, the Earl Grey knocks people's socks off. Three flavors? Yes. For $3, you can do a flight for three. Okay, cherry, margarita, and peanut butter. Do it all. I've been doing this market for about a year, and it's really been amazing. It, apparently the word is out. Yeah. It's not like people don't know about this. It's super underground anymore. <laughs> Might have to change the name. Yeah. I've stepped out of the Maelstrom inside, out here on the sidewalk, to speak to the organizer of this event, Iso Rabins. Iso, hi. Hello. So the underground market started off very small. How did it get to become this huge club event? Yeah, so at that point it was like seven vendors, maybe 150 people showed up. It was someone's house. But even at that point, someone called the health department on us. And ironically, I think the health department showing up to the first one is the reason that there are this many people here tonight. Like um, Suddenly it was anarchy. No, it was. The first one, so like 150 people showed up. And I wrote a blog post about like, oh, the health department showed up and this and this and this happened. And the second one, like a thousand people showed up too. Now this is the thing. So there's like this element of rock and roll anarchic danger is part of what's drawing people to this thing. And yet I'm assuming that the goal is to get people people to be able to launch legitimate businesses out of this. Is there a dichotomy there? I mean, exactly. The kind of end goal is to help people launch their own businesses. And I think that 10% of these people are here because they want to be in the market. You know, and that's kind of the point. But then there's also like 25% of the people here because it's like this is the place to be regardless of what's going on and food happens to be it. I think it's great though. I mean, like of all the things that could be like cool that people would want to wait a long time in line for, Waiting in line for two hours because you want to buy a banh mi sandwich that supports this girl who loves that what she does for a living is make banh mi sandwiches and like wants to be, just be doing the thing they're passionate about. I think it's really great. Man, Punk Rock Rebellion looks totally different than it used to back in my day. Yeah. It's like instead of piercing your face, you buy 
barely legal gnocchi or something. <laughs> barely legal gnocchi. I think I've seen that on late night food TV, you, actually. I don't doubt it. <laughs> That's the Dinner Party download for this week. Special thanks to Jackson Musker and Ravi Carmen, and a hearty welcome to KUOW in Seattle and WKSU in Kent, Ohio. Yes. Uh, cities and states that I love dearly. They both begin airing us this week. Hello, new friends. And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's dinner party. The band is called Black Lips, and the song is called Modern Art. Bon appétit. Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm John Buckley with a reading from Casey at the Chemist. Oh, somewhere in this favoured land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey was caught juicing up with stanozolol and a cocktail of growth hormones. Five years later, bald, obese and impotent, shunned by the fans who once loved him, he tried to earn money by giving anti-drug talks in high schools. But he grew weary of the children's callous jeers and was considering a move to Barbados, when one afternoon a janitor at the derelict motel Casey called home recorded him singing in the shower. His voice was now a high-pitched castrato, the sound of angels celebrating. The janitor passed the tape to a friend in the music business, and today, Casey dazzles opera audiences the world round. His memoir, From Mud to Juice to Ode to Joy, will be published in spring.